The Tenth Commandment is about coveting. It has to do with desire and is often felt to be the least or among the least significant commandments. But what the Bible teaches is that coveting is the root of the most horrific sins. Welcome to Every Last Word, a radio and internet program with Dr. Philip Ryken, teaching the whole Bible to change your whole life. We're in a verse-by-verse study of the life of Elijah. In today's passage, we'll see how covetousness leads to all kinds of evil. Well, Phil, today, I just love the title, Sour Grapes. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, Mark, I was actually torn between calling it sour grapes and calling it the grapes of wrath. And uh, probably people that know the Old Testament will know this is the story of Ahab, who covets Naboth's vineyard and who wants it so badly that life itself becomes bitter to him. He just is full of sour grapes because he doesn't have the piece of property that he really wants. Well, Phil, today's is a powerful message about the dangers of a desire that goes unchecked. How can we as Christians seek to identify and eliminate those kinds of dangerous desires? You know, Mark, our desires themselves are not necessarily sinful, but a desire that is in conflict with God's will for our lives or that is directly in conflict with the Word of God, that's a desire that is a sinful desire. And unless we seek to exercise godly contentment in that area of life, that sinful desire is likely to grow until it takes over our entire lives the way that it did for Ahab. And he had both of those problems. He had a desire that was not God's will and a desire that was against God's word. And we'll see the unhappy results in today's message. All right. Thank you, Phil. Let's turn in our Bibles now to 1 Kings chapter 21 and listen to God's word for us today. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Ahab, king of Samaria, had made his choice. He had decided to make money his master. He loved money. He was devoted to it. He had decided to serve money, 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 money. It all began when Ahab noticed that Naboth owned a nice piece of property. It was a vineyard in Jezreel, close to the royal palace. The more Ahab thought about it, the more he wanted that property. It was a vineyard fit for a king, it seemed in his opinion. He started thinking about how he would develop the land if it belonged to him. However nice it was as a vineyard, it would be even nicer as a vegetable garden, especially a vegetable garden belonging to himself, the king. So Ahab went to Naboth with a business proposition. He made him a fair offer, if not an overly generous one. In exchange for the vineyard near the palace, he would give Naboth a better vineyard. Or if Naboth wanted to get out of the grape industry altogether, Ahab would pay him whatever the property was worth. Naboth refused. This passage is more concerned with Ahab than Naboth, but it is worth noticing what master Naboth had chosen. He had decided to serve God rather than to serve money. Naboth replied, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. 
Naboth knew his Bible. He knew that the children of Israel were not permitted to sell their property to one another because their property actually belonged to God himself. Leviticus chapter 25, verse 23, The land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine and you are but aliens and my tenants. Numbers chapter 36, verse 7, No inheritance in Israel is to pass from tribe to tribe. For every Israelite shall keep the tribal land inherited from his forefathers. Naboth, you see, was one of those 7,000 in Israel who had not bowed down his knee to Baal or kissed his mouth. He shows us how to serve God rather than serve money. You see how he invites the Lord to witness his business dealings. He will not violate the law of God even if it is to his own financial advantage. He will not dishonor his ancestors by selling the family farm. God forbid that Naboth should give Ahab the inheritance of his fathers, a vineyard belonging to God. As we come to the end of this story, we will see that Naboth paid the price for his obedience to God. He was put to death. But be sure that Naboth received his reward. He was not storing up treasure on earth. He was storing up treasure for himself in heaven. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Naboth's heart was in the right place, and so was his treasure. Ahab, on the other hand, was looking for earthly treasure. And he was very unhappy when he realized that this real estate venture was slipping through his fingers. He just had to have that vineyard. And so when he didn't get his way, he did what any two-year-old would do. He pouted. Ahab went home, the scripture says, sullen and angry because Naboth the Jezreelite had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my father's. He lay on his bed sulking and refused to eat. Poor Ahab. He is in one of his moods again. He was in the same kind of mood at the end of chapter 20 when God told him he had to pay for the life of Ben-Hadad. Now he is sullen and angry again. Then he was sulking about God. This time he is sulking about his fellow man. Then it was self-righteous indignation. Now it is just sour grapes. In his exposition of this passage, F.B. Meyer treats Ahab with delicious sarcasm. In a room of the palace, Ahab, king of Israel, lies upon his couch, his face towards the wall, refusing to eat. What has taken place? Has disaster befallen the royal arms? Have the priests of Baal again been massacred? Is his royal consort dead? No. The soldiers are still flushed with their recent victories over Syria. The worship of Baal has quite recovered the terrible disaster of Carmel. Jezebel, resolute, crafty, cruel, and beautiful, is now standing by his side, anxiously seeking the cause of this sadness. Ah, Jezebel... Even she could tell that something was wrong. Ahab's sulking was worse than usual. He wouldn't even come to the dinner table. 
So she asked him what his problem was. Why are you so sullen? Verse 5, why won't you eat? Ahab's reply shows that he was serving money rather than God. First he tells her what a juicy offer he made, and then he misquotes Naboth's refusal. See what Ahab says. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. That is not what Naboth said at all. In fact, Naboth was careful to say that the vineyard did not belong to him at all. His whole point was that the vineyard was not his to sell. It was part of his inheritance in the promised land and thus belonged to God. I suppose that we should even be careful not to call this the story of Naboth's vineyard. The vineyard belongs to God. But Ahab doesn't get it. He misses the point entirely. You see how impossible it is for a man who serves money like Ahab to understand a man who serves God like Naboth. If you love Christ, you will often make decisions that are not based on physical comfort or material gain, but simply on your faithfulness to God. And from time to time, your friends and family members will think you are out of your mind. Of course they will. Those who do not know Christ don't understand your priorities. They don't make any sense to them because they are serving a different master. The only thing that really matters is that God understands because he is your master. Now, if anyone knew how to serve money, it was Jezebel. She would have made a terrific financial officer. Or better yet, she would have made a terrific king. Is this how you act as king over Israel, she asks? You weakling, are you or are you not a king? And she starts giving her orders. She assumes Ahab's role in the marriage and over the kingdom. Get up and eat, cheer up, I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. Jezebel was a better man than Ahab. She was decisive, clever, unscrupulous, and deadly. First, she commits a forgery. She wrote letters in Ahab's name, placed his seal on them, and sent them to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city with him. Then she committed hypocrisy, scheduling a false religious exercise. Proclaim a day of fasting and seat Naboth in a prominent place among the people. Then she commits a perjury. But seat two scoundrels opposite him and have them testify that he has cursed both God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. Everything went according to this conspiracy. The elders and nobles did Jezebel's dirty work for her. I rounded up a couple of scoundrels or reprobates as the Hebrew actually says. They had to be false witnesses because Naboth himself was true. And of course, there had to be two of them because the law of God requires two witnesses to establish the truth of an accusation. On the day of the fast, as Naboth was seated in a place of honor, those scoundrels sat opposite him and brought their false charges against him. They accused him of both blasphemy and treason. Naboth has cursed both God and the king, they said. 
And then in keeping with the law of God, they did take him outside the city and stone him to death. Naboth was a righteous man, murdered by a ruthless queen. He was a small farmer crushed by the injustice of a tyrant. How ironic and how very distasteful that Jezebel, of all people, should accuse a righteous man of blasphemy. Naboth's death warns us of at least two great spiritual dangers. The first, of course, is the danger of coveting. This is the last of the Ten Commandments. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or his maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Or, we might add, your neighbor's vineyard. I suppose some Christians consider coveting to be a lesser sin. Sure, it's in the Ten Commandments, they say, but it seems so much less serious than adultery or theft, obviously, or murder. But Ahab and Jezebel teach us by negative example that coveting is a very wicked thing to do. They show us how one sin leads to another. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. What better proof than this chapter of Scripture? Coveting gives way to bitterness, bitterness to deception, deception to murder. What starts out as simply sour grapes ends up in a homicide. But that is the logical conclusion of coveting. If I can't get what I want from you by any other means, I can always kill you to get it. That is what the covetous desire really says in the heart. And here we see it worked out in all of its implications in the life of Ahab, just as we see it elsewhere in Scripture in the life of David. David coveted Bathsheba, and when all else failed, he was willing to kill Uriah to get her. Coveting is a very great sin. O children of God, living in this age of prosperity, guard your hearts against the love of money. Examine your hearts to see if you need to repent for any covetous desire. And then the murder of Naboth also warns us of this danger, the danger of an ungodly marriage. Ahab made many bad decisions in his life, as we have seen. But the worst choice he ever made was to make Jezebel his queen. Husbands and wives do not leave one another where they are spiritually. They either make one another more godly or they make one another more worldly. By choosing to marry an ungodly woman, Ahab was choosing to become an ungodly man. From the very beginning, Jezebel pushed Ahab in the wrong direction. Down in verse 25, we read that Ahab sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord urged on by Jezebel, his wife. Those few words describe so much of Ahab's failings. 
Jezebel was the kind of woman who not only sins herself, but helps others to sin, and especially her husband. As I study this chapter, I find myself asking, what would a godly woman have done if she had found herself in Jezebel's high heels? What should Jezebel have done? What should she have said to her husband? Perhaps she could have reminded Ahab of the spiritual responsibilities of his profession. If she wanted him to behave like a king, she should have read to him from the book of Deuteronomy. There the Lord God commands that his king not consider himself better than his brothers and not turn from the law to the right or to the left. Perhaps Jezebel could have warned her husband of the dangers of being discontent. A godly woman would have taught Ahab the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. A godly woman would have reminded him that godliness with contentment is great gain. She would have said to him, Oh, my dearest husband, don't you know that real contentment is knowing that if you are not content with what you already have, You will not be content with what you think you want. Perhaps Jezebel could have taken Ahab on a grand tour of his palace and gardens. She could have taken him to his treasury and shown him all his wealth. She could have taken him to his kitchens and shown him all the rich foods he had to eat. She could have taken him out into the gardens and suggested a better location for his precious vegetables. And then she could have said, don't you see, my beloved, we have everything we need and much more besides. You see, a godly queen would have found some way to turn her king's heart away from sin. A godly wife is a principal means for the sanctification of her husband through prayer, through the word of God, through her own example but not, of course, through nagging. She shows her husband how to serve God rather than money. And, of course, the same thing is true of a godly husband. He does all of these same things through prayer, through the Word of God, through his own example, but not through harsh criticism. He warns his wife to serve God rather than money. The royal couple of Samaria warn us of the danger of an unspiritual marriage. If you are married, you must sanctify your spouse. And this is true even if your spouse is not yet a Christian. Love your spouse with the love of Christ and then pray for his or her salvation. But then what if you are single? Well, to begin with, you must not court or marry an unbeliever, lest you end up in the same condition as poor Ahab. And then seek out sanctifying friendships. If you are single, it is not enough simply to come to church on the Lord's Day and then go about your business the rest of the week. You need to nurture strong Christian friendships. You need to commit yourself to intimate relationships with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is one of the reasons, so that in that day when you are tempted to serve money rather than God, you will have a friend who loves you enough to talk some biblical sense back into you. 
Now, Ahab did not have such a friend or such a wife. As soon as Jezebel heard news of Naboth's death, she ordered Ahab to get up and take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, that he refused to sell you. He is no longer alive, but dead. Now, Ahab knew better than to ask Jezebel any embarrassing questions about how Naboth died. Immediately, he went to confiscate Naboth's vineyard. We learn from 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 25, that two of his commanders rode with him on their chariots. Perhaps Ahab wanted some protection. Perhaps Ahab wanted to show off his hot property. But in any case, like a spoiled child on Christmas morning, Ahab finally has what he wants. Everything has gone according to plan, and the story ends where it began, back in Naboth's vineyard, except that now it is Ahab's vineyard. And I can imagine Ahab touring his new property, looking out over the grapevines, making plans for his vegetable garden. The beans will go in this plot, he might have said. I will put the melons right here, and then a row of onions, and then a few lentils. But before Ahab had a chance to taste his first grape or plant his first vegetable, he saw God's man, Elijah, standing among the vines. Imagine the look that Elijah saw on Ahab's face. Imagine the way that Ahab's heart fell down to his toes then his ill-gotten vineyard really did become sour grapes. Ahab knew exactly why Elijah was there. His words betray the burden of a guilty conscience. So you have found me, my enemy. If God's prophet is Ahab's enemy, it is only because God is not Ahab's master. It is terrifying the way that God cuts through this sinner's defenses. Of course, the legal system never would have been able to touch Ahab. Not guilty, he would say. Yes, my seal is on the letters, but the whole thing is a forgery. Not guilty, he would say. Jezebel made all the arrangements. She wrote the letters. She directed the nobles. I have no knowledge of any wrongdoing. Not guilty, he would say. Those two scoundrels in Jezreel were the ones who made all the false accusations. But you see, God judges every deed that is done in the body, whether open or secret, and his condemnation is just. Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? The prophet of God speaks to Ahab in the second person. God holds Ahab responsible, not only for coveting, but also for the murder itself. And then again in verse 20, you have sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. What an apt phrase. Ahab has sold himself to do evil. When Ahab made money his master, he was selling his soul. And now the blood of Naboth is on his hands. Ahab's condemnation reminds us 
to be scrupulously honest in all our business. Do not just follow the guidelines of your company. Do not just follow the letter of the law of the land. God's standards are much higher than the standards of your profession or the requirements of the United States government. You must not just do what is required or what is legal. You must do what is right in the eyes of God. You must be perfectly honest in all your motives, in all your intentions, and in all your transactions. If you have not lived up to God's standards in your business or finance, then you are resting on a shaky foundation. You have made your money, perhaps. You have turned your profit. And yet, like Ahab, as you walk about your vineyard, you find yourself waiting and waiting and waiting for your sins to find you out. And find you out, they will. God knew where to find Ahab. He knew that he was in that vineyard. He knew what he had done. And this is what the Lord says, in the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood. Yes, yours. You see how God anticipates that Ahab will wear a look of disbelief when Elijah pronounces his sentence. Who, me? Yes, you. What? My blood? Yes, yours. I am going to bring disaster on you. I will consume your descendants and cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. Ahab has sold his entire kingdom for a bunch of grapes. God also has a little something in store for Jezebel. Dogs will devour Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Jezebel thought she was getting something for Ahab for nothing. But she will pay for Naboth's vineyard with her own life. And of course, this was the word of the Lord, and these prophecies were fulfilled. In Second Kings chapter 9, we read how Jehu set out to kill every last member of Ahab's family. And when Jezebel heard about it, she put on her makeup, she fixed her hair, and she waited by a window in the palace at Jezreel. I suppose she was dressed to kill. For when Jehu arrived... At the palace, he had Jezebel thrown down from the window and trampled by horses. After eating a victory meal, he said, Take care of that cursed woman and bury her, for she was a king's daughter. But when they went out to bury her, they found nothing except her skull, her feet, and her hands. They went back and told Jehu, who said, This is the word of the Lord that he spoke through his servant Elijah. On the plot of ground at Jezreel, dogs will devour Jezebel's flesh so that no one will be able to say, this is Jezebel. She did not even get a decent burial. God despised her because she despised God. Jezebel's death is a warning, of course, to everyone who murders. But equally to everyone who covets, to everyone who lies or cheats or steals. It is a warning to everyone who serves money rather than God. God will judge you for your sins. That is such a clear, 
such a vivid warning that even Ahab heeded it. There, as he stood in Naboth's vineyard, he finally understood that when God says he will punish sin, he actually means it. When Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and fasted. He lay in sackcloth and went around meekly. Can you believe it? Once again, the king is refusing to eat, but this time it is not because he is serving money, but because he is serving God. Ahab, repenting? Can you believe it? God himself can hardly believe it. This is what he says to Elijah. Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster in his day, but I will bring it on his house in the days of his son. Can you believe it? Many of the commentators can't believe it. They deny that Ahab was really sorry for sins. They observe that Ahab was only making the outward gestures of repentance. They point out that Ahab often went around meekly, but that was just because he was easy to lead. They argue that if Ahab really wanted to repent, he needed to return that vineyard. And furthermore, as we will find out next week in the very next chapter, Ahab will follow false prophets instead of following God's will. Roger Ellsworth calls Ahab's actions a phony repentance. I'm not so sure. I think Ahab did repent for his sins. I think his penitent deeds came from a penitent heart. What is the evidence for Ahab's repentance? First, notice that God himself says, not once but twice, that Ahab humbled himself. Furthermore, God granted Ahab a stay of execution. Part of the proof of Ahab's repentance comes in God's mercy. Now, eventually, Ahab died, of course, killed by a random arrow in the battle of Ramoth-Gilead. The dogs did lick up his blood, just as Elijah promised. But Ahab's queen and Ahab's sons were not destroyed until after he died. God kept his promise of mercy to Ahab. The scripture even says, chapter 22, verse 40, that Ahab rested with his fathers, which is a phrase that everywhere else means that a king has died at peace with God. I do not know the extent of the Lord's mercy for Ahab, but I do know that the Lord had mercy on him because he repented for his sins. And so I think I can believe the reality of Ahab's repentance. What I still have trouble believing is that God had mercy on Ahab. Who can understand the mercy that God showed to Ahab? Oh, I can understand the mercy that God showed to Moses. Moses committed a great sin when he struck the rock in anger, but God had mercy on him because he needed a man like Moses to lead his people out of Egypt. And I can understand why God had mercy on David. David committed a great sin when he slept with Bathsheba and murdered Uriah. But God had mercy on him because he needed a man after his own heart to establish the kingdom of Israel. And I can understand why God had mercy on Peter. Peter committed a great sin when he denied the Christ 
But God had mercy on him because he needed a man like Peter to establish his church. And I can understand why God had mercy on Paul. Paul committed a great sin when he persecuted the church of Jesus Christ. But God had mercy on him because he needed a man like Paul to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. But who can explain why God had mercy on Ahab? Who can account for it? Who can understand it? The scripture says that Ahab sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. He behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols. And Ahab had no strengths to make up for his weaknesses, not that I can see. He had no virtues to outweigh his vices. Ahab was weak, gullible, greedy. He would not become a great leader or a great king or a great preacher, or a great missionary. Why should God have mercy on him? Who can understand the mercy God showed to Ahab? I cannot understand it any more than I can understand the mercy that I have received through Jesus Christ. I cannot account for it any more than I can account for God sending his only son to suffer and to die for my sins on the cross. I cannot explain it any more than I can explain why, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Maybe you can explain God's mercy, or maybe you can't understand it any better than I can, but you can receive it. King Ahab received nothing but free grace because he was nothing but a needy sinner. And if you know that you are a sinner, if you know that you have been serving the wrong master, if you are standing in the vineyard knowing you haven't the slightest chance of avoiding God's judgment, then the scripture says to you that it is not too late to repent for your sins. It wasn't too late for Ahab. And if it wasn't too late for him, it's never too late for anyone All you need to do is say to God, I repent for all my sins. Oh, God, have mercy on my soul. Let the death of Jesus Christ on the cross count as the punishment for my sins. And if you say that, then God will notice what you have done as he noticed what Ahab had done. He will notice how you have humbled yourself and he will have mercy on your soul. Yes, yours. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the richness of your word. The way that we see in the pages of scripture, not only the kind of people that we know, but the kind of people that we are ourselves with all our mixed motives and sinful thoughts and desires. We repent for our covetousness. We repent for the way that we have tried to serve two masters at the same time. We repent for our failings to sanctify our spouses. And we ask that you would have mercy on our souls the way that you had mercy on Ahab. We give you praise because we know that in Christ such mercy is available to us. And so it is in his name that we pray. Amen.
You have been listening to Every Last Word, a ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, featuring the Bible teaching of Dr. Philip Graham Riken. We appreciate your ongoing support of this broadcast ministry. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades, even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching that will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. The Alliance also produces the radio broadcasts The Bible Study Hour, featuring the teaching of the late Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, and Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, featuring the Bible teaching of the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. For a full list of radio stations carrying our programs, please visit our website at www.alliancenet.org. Every last word continues through your generous gifts and financial support. If you would like to see this program continue to benefit others as it has benefited you, please prayerfully consider becoming a friend of the Alliance. For more information or to make a contribution, please contact us by calling toll-free 1-800-488-1888. You can also send us a gift by writing to Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, PA, 19103. Or you can visit us online at www.alliancenet.org. Be sure to ask for a free resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians. Thank you again for your continued support and for listening to Every Last Word. <laughs>